Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome to the pod, everyone. We've got a new guest, uh, Janine McJanet. She's an RTT therapist. RTT, I just learned, stands for Rapid Transformational Therapy. And she focuses on soul empowerment, and she's a play coach. And um, she's a, a colleague and friend of Alan's. Alan's with us, too. And she's going to explain a little bit about what she does and dovetail that with uh, emotional sobriety. How's it going, Janine? Great, great. Thanks for having me. How are you guys doing? Excited to have you a part of this today, Janine. You and I just kind of, we got introduced to each other through Dr. Sean, who I love her work and I know you love her work too. Yeah. And and I'm I'm so excited to have you as a guest in our podcast. Yay. Yay. Well, I'm excited to be here too. And glad can to be here. Can you tell everybody what RTT is in terms of what you try to do and and even the play part is so much fun because you're very playful, by the way. I oh, mean, it fits you like a glove. I mean, good. it really. Well, you got to play. Like everyone takes life so seriously, right? So I find that you can play. The, the more you play, the happier you are, and the more experiences you, you, the more experiences you can get. So RTT therapy is where I've landed. I started my journey in 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 nutritional coaching and I sort of branched out into the spiritual world and then started to think, Oh, I have a lot of healing to do. And I remember sitting down for that first online course with a big glass of red wine and a bag of chips going, this is going to be so much fun. And then uh, it's changed. That was five years ago. So I've landed, I've, I've moved my way through there through really understanding the power of the mind and how I can help people with that. And I've landed on RTT as you said, rapid transformational therapy. And that's a process that I have just fallen in love with. And I guess to, to summarize it, it's it's in four eyes. Right? There's beautiful four eyes that we can summarize it in. And the first one is really to investigate. And that's the curiosity part, investigating what's going on, these triggers and these patterns, this behavior that we don't like. And then to um, interpret that investigation. So we're like our own detective and, and in therapy, that's the guidance of the therapist, is to really interpret what those experiences are. Um, your past experience, not reliving, but just revisiting and understanding the link between our current behavior and our past. And then dropping in to interrupt that. How can we interrupt the patterns, you know, change what's going on in our mind, that story, that old, stale, rotten, toxic story that keeps so many of us stuck. And then to install, that's the fourth I, is to install a new belief system. So this is all really about looking at your belief system that we've had forever and ever and changing it through those four eyes, which is investigate, interpret, interrupt, and install. And so that that can be used outside of therapy and it can be used with anything that we can do consciously as well. It's just like, what's going on? That's the curiosity piece. What's going on with me? Why am I acting like that? Why am I thinking like that? Why am I behaving like this? And then just to, to stop and pause and have a look inside because we know that that's where the work is inside. So that's a little bit about it. The stories we tell ourselves and we tell ourselves the story until we're kind of recapitulating it or reenacting it. I mean, that's always been a very powerful notion to me. And the idea that we can kind of rewrite that story um, has been, you know, a carrot that's kept me going through recovery at times. Um, can you tell uh, us a little bit about um, 
you know, your personal journey through the, the four eyes and um, maybe uh, what were some like some wrinkles in your story that you uh, uncovered uh, while embarking on that process? The thing is that that this process took me a long time to find. So I have decades of experiences where I wasn't investigating myself. I was just living by the seats of my pants and being the party girl. And I found sobriety as well. Or as you just said, sobriety found me three years ago. Um, but before that, it was just, it was mess and it was a chaos. There was no intention. There was no dreams I was living a life of a people pleaser because I grew up in that dysfunctional family and all these traumatic relationships that formed in the family and outside of the family sort of kept me hiding, kept the masks on through my 20s and 30s and 40s even. So it's relatively recent that I've understood that investigation is essential if we want to make a difference in the world, if we want to make a difference in our lives and especially in our family. So when I started seeing my children, I've got a 14 and a 17 year old. When I started seeing them behave in a way that I believed I behaved when I was younger towards my mom, I was like, oh, something's going wrong here. And this whole idea of the generational cycle and breaking it became really important to me. And uh, yeah, we all grow up we all grow up with things that that we don't like and that affects us. So it's that investigation that led me to go, okay, so I'm going to start to pull these pieces out. I'm going to start to take the masks off and as difficult as it was and as, as vulnerable as I felt and as many tears as I shed, it was like, oh man, I thought I was okay, but I wasn't really okay. And so it was the releasing and the understanding that, yeah, I got to do some work here. Otherwise my life is going to stay masked up. On a very basic level, um, I'm much less articulate than Alan when talking about this, but um, what emo emotional sobriety has meant for me is um, I cannot move through life and through my various crises with the expectation that the world is going to conform to my expectations and my demands. And if the world will not conform to me, then I must kind of conform to it, but find a way of doing that that is in alignment with some emergent value system. Would you say that part of, you know, this pivot point in your recovery journey came from that looking inward, from that realization that you had to, you know, that there's some way that you were going to need to adjust, bend so that you wouldn't break, I guess. Is, is that something that uh, resonates with you at all or? Well, absolutely. Um... And bending and breaking was was common. So I would break many a time and then just sort of bounce back, but only to that lowest standard. I can remember times I worked in corporate for 28 years, looking out the window at the Ravens, just going, wow, I'm so lucky to have a job and benefits and a pension to come. And, and I broke down several times, you know, having kids, becoming a parent the first time was just like overwhelming for me. And, and a lot of things became overwhelming. So that, that dive down to the bottom, um, there wasn't just one moment where I went, oh yeah, I'm going to fix myself and everything is going to be fine. It was continuous, continuous until I just said, I'm getting old, I'm getting older and I'm not doing what I'm here to do. And so I 
quit that job. And, and it was a huge leap of faith. In fact, I got my daughter to push the send button on the, on the letter. She was like nine years old. She's like pushed it. And I was like, I did it. She goes, no, you didn't. I did. (laughs) But that was the fear. And so a lot of, a lot of what we're talking about is the fear, the fear of sort of stepping out side of our comfort zone. And I always say I was cooped up in that complacent cage and just sitting there waiting for something or someone. And, and that was the power of, I think the power of drinking, both of my parents were alcoholics. They're both past now. And there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of chaos. And so I learned at a very early age that, oh, drinking will, you know, numb that chaotic feeling and bring a little bit of harmony inside, even if it was only for very short lived time. So I think the point where I may have pivoted, although I didn't realize it at the time, was when I was 24 years old. And I was up in Northern Canada living with my father, who I hadn't seen for 12 years. So it was kind of like an abandoned reunion. Um, My mother took us all to Australia and my dad moved up to the other side of the world. And so sitting there and, you know, I remember the first time dad was downstairs drinking and I said, well, what's this vodka and orange stuff? And so I sat up there and I started writing a letter and I'm having a drink. I'm going, this is kind of fun because that's the, that's the, the, the poison of alcohol is that it, it creates this illusion that it's lots of fun and that it's great for celebration and it relaxes you all the different lies. And I don't know how many drinks I had. And I wrote a letter and I sent it off the next, I don't even remember who I sent it to. Um, but that was, that's where I started to go. Oh, this is okay. I feel better although I didn't. And just before I was going to leave um, Canada to go back to Australia, in fact, the night before, the day before, I went into my dad's house because I was living with my boyfriend then, and um, who I was just going to leave and say, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm carrying on. And I found him on his couch and he had his dog on his lap and there were pills sort of strewn all over the place. And he had had a heart attack. So I found him passed away And I remember just going outside and screaming and screaming and he was gone and that's how he was gone. And then, and then again, the clouds of alcohol and the family coming up and all the chaos that, that ensued, it didn't bust me out of that bubble um, thinking, Oh, I got to make a difference here. It brought me further down into, you know, states of anxiety and depression and just numbing out. (laughs) So I think I've gone beyond the question, but that's, no, that... no, but you know what you're saying, Janine, is so important for our listeners to hear. You see, certain events in our life will activate some of that trauma in our life. You know, Ernie Larson gives a great analogy to this. He says that when we get, when we experience a childhood trauma, it, it, it shatters our bones, our psychological, emotional bones. And he says, even though they heal, there's going to be bone fragments that are still floating in your body. And he says, sometimes it'll be a year, sometimes it's going to take a decade, but eventually those bone fragments work their way up. And when they pierce your tender skin, they hurt like hell. Yeah. And that's what you were describing so well. I mean, you really, that really, that that was a bottom for you in some way. Yeah. And, and, the, and one of the poems that I shared with you earlier was sitting inside of me that first verse for three years almost born in a taxi cab and I didn't want to I didn't it, I was afraid I, I don't want to go out there I don't want to 
nobody knew. There was no such thing as counseling back then for me. I just sort of remember having a shower and crying going, oh, that's okay. That happens. Stuff happens to everybody. But you share that piece of that poem that you're referring to? Let, let, that'd be great. I would love to. Give me one. <laughs> um, so this is a poem that I wrote, um, my first poem. And um, it was it was um, hard to write. But when I started and I put that pen to the paper, eventually after that first verse, it just went. And then I, I was like, oh, and then I sang it to my kids. I'm going to tell you this and then I'm going to tell you the poem. I sang it to my kids and I shared it with my children. And all of a sudden, and this was so heart-wrenching for me. I thought, my gosh, I have given my children a voice now that is very similar to my voice. You broke that multi-generational transmission of, of the problem, right? You gave them a voice that you never had, which is, wow, it's it's so powerful. Yeah. And and we continue to have discussions. And in, in my, you know, boozeless days now, it's just like so much clarity and so much so much of me is there for them. I mean, it's not this beautiful, calm, harmonious relationship. Of course, there's going to be ups and downs, but we have a better understanding of each other. Can I say, I'm just so sorry for your loss. I'm sorry you went through that. Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, so this is my poem, my life, I call it, <clears throat> but it really does relate to a lot of other people's. I was almost born in a taxi cab the night before Halloween, my mama held me in her arms, my little darling Janine. She said, you'll be my pillar of strength for the next decade or two, but please excuse your dad and me for what we're gonna do. We're gonna drink and smoke and fight and scream and call each other names. Cards of codependency was one of our favorite games. We tried our best, but we had no choice of what we would do to you. So forgive us, please, my little girl. And please forgive you too. I was almost burned in a sea of words, the ones that she said to me, the fire I saw and the flames that grew. She blamed the family tree. She says, you suffered so much. Well, we all did. I wish I'd been there through her fear. If I could hug and kiss her now, I'd whisper in her ear, don't drink and smoke and fight and scream and call each other names. Alcohol and its foul deeds was one of their favorite games. I tried my best, but I had no clue of what was to come of me. But I've forgiven myself and them as well. And I'm replanting the family tree. That was your first poem? Yes. <laughs> well done. And once I, once you, once you, they, they go like this when they're applauding, right? Yeah. And it's so, it's such a, I mean, there's so it's so rich with with your experience and, and the and the problem that we all suffer from, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're all victims of victims, is the way I like to say it. I mean, we're all victims of victims. They were victimized. Look at their lives they had, and then they turn around and pass it on. And that's what I meant before. Thank God you're trying to break that cycle. And I, I like the choice of your word there and trying to break the cycle because that's that word to me has is a trigger, trying, trying. It doesn't have um, a certain definitive endpoint, but I'm determined. And yeah. in the process, I am breaking the cycle, even though it's not going to be completely 
beautiful and free. My children see that choices can be made at any time in your life. Well, you set a different them. intention. Right on, right on. You set a different, but it is funny that thing because there was a while back in the human potential movement where they say, don't try, just do it, right? It was the Nike slogan, right? Just do it, which there's truth to that too, but it's also a process like you're pointing out. It's yeah. like, let's not set ourselves up. There's some things you might be able to turn around and, and clean up, but a lot of these things we're going to stay in some kind of a relationship with the rest of our life. Yeah, because they're so deeply entrenched into our, our being and our ways. And I think this is why I was really drawn to emotional sobriety and your work is just like, well, what does that mean? I mean, I've stopped drinking. Isn't that the best thing in the world? I'm going to be all good now. And then all of this stuff started coming out and I'm like, oh, this isn't good. How, how can I get rid of that feeling? And that was, that was a real link for me that alcohol just stops those feelings. It keeps them suppressed. And so having them come up and sort of sashay their way through my life and, and acknowledge them and deal with them and hold on to them, like really hold on to them. Emotional sobriety for me, it has um, been a helpful narrative to explain why my sobriety doesn't just mean that everything um, is now restored to its proper place and that, you know, the, this I'm no longer living a life of chaos or like deep fundamental challenge, you know, I mean, all that stuff um, is still there and in some ways it's heightened and I appreciate you speaking to kind of like it's a process that in some senses it'll get worse before it gets better but like the experiences we're having are much truer and um, authentic right and um, we're coming to know ourselves in a way that we never have before and there's um, a lot of value packed into that has that been your experience to some extent? Yeah. And it's continuous. It's like, oh, yes, it's great. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Because we have these things that come up daily, these moods, these emotions, these thoughts, and they could, you know, they can be joyful, but they can really be hurtful as well. You know, there's the anger and the frustration for so long. And so many people say, just don't, you know, if you're angry, just smile, just, just put a smiley face on, be happy. But I think the real juicy secret is in allowing those ugly emotions to come up. And I, I invite them to this dining room table that I've set up in my mind. And there's the door and there's these perched feelings. You know, one of them was anxiety and the other one was anger. And they're just like ready to jump all the time. And it's like, instead of like ignoring them, like get, get to the table. I'm sitting at the head and I'm going to ask you to speak what's going on. What is this fear about? What's this anger about? What's this resentment about? What is this desire to run away about? You know, and all of those things come together. And it is work. And sometimes I'm like, I wish I didn't start this because it was so much easier before just to kind of go through your day and then go to sleep at night and wake up and do the whole thing again. But it's such a joy to be able to experience these emotions now, um, especially anger. Anger has been many, many women have been taught that anger is something that you don't need to show. And so allowing anger to step up and using it in a healthy way and acknowledging it and just letting yourself like be angry is great. Oh, I find it so fulfilling. I want to read you something, Janine. I, I don't know if you've ever been exposed to to Rumi's poems and stuff, but he's a, was a brilliant Sufi poet from the 12th century. Now think about that. That's 1100, right? 
yeah. the 12th century. This is what he wrote. It's called The Guest House. And it, it just so resonates with what you just said. He goes, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that is incredible. It totally resonates with your dining room. I, I was imagining the dining room and you inviting everybody in, and sitting down and having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee yeah. or whatever, and saying, hey, let's figure out what this is about, guys. And that's the playful component of it, right? Uh, the sound of that. Yes, right on, Janine. Yes. Because if we close that door, they're going to yeah. find a way, and usually it's in the back end, and it's going to surprise the heck out of us and implode or explode one way or the other. So I love that. Thank you. That's exactly true. And see, people don't get that. See, see, we spend so much time avoiding our experience that in many ways, and we're talking about this on Thursday nights now, we get so desensitized to what's really going on. We lose touch with our bodies. We lose touch with our emotions. We lose touch with our desires with our passion, and we become these robots going through life, these automatons, and just doing what, quote, we think we should do, and showing up, and, but our life is gone. Yeah. You know, this Dr. Karen Horn, I called it, we lose the ability to be sincere with ourselves. I love that. We yeah. lose the ability to be sincere, and what you're talking about is how we can recover that sincerity. Yeah. And we have to be sincere with ourselves, really, before we can be sincere with other people. And that's the fundamental thing of all relationships. Like, I'm in a marriage of 30 years now, and I, I saw something yesterday, um, Gay Hendricks and his wife, Katie, um, they have no secrets. And I'm going, no secrets? None at all? What would it feel like? So this is going to be my conversation tonight is, is let's just, let's get down naked. Let's yeah. show yeah, each right. other what's going on. That's true intimacy right there. Yeah. Powerful. It's scary as hell sometimes. Totally is. Why would we, that's what our brain doesn't want to. And this is a lot of RTT. It's our mind. It's, it's, it's one of the rules. It's we want to be safe. So why would we put ourselves in a place where we may get judged, where we may get rejected, where we may get full-on abandonment, because that abandonment wound is so deep and so strong for so many of us. That's what our brain does. It's like, come back here, come on, safe. Yeah. And and then we don't. And then that's where the resentment and eventually contempt will come in, not only for others, especially those in our dear family, but within ourselves too. And that's where we have this dichotomy here going on, like, I don't know. I don't know which one, you can't make your mind up indecisive because there's two stories going on, that cognitive dissonance. You know, um, I think you both could probably speak to this, but um, raising teenagers, 
and uh, <laughs> recovery and emotional sobriety. I mean, I one of my closest relationships is with my mom, and I was an absolute terror when I was, um, you know, adolescent aged and just angry and frustrated. And that's where I, where I first started to use drugs and alcohol um, to try and get a grip. Or that was my first, uh, the, the first um, medium that I found where I could try to get a grip on my behavior and all these new feelings rushing in. And uh, yeah, I'd imagine it's like a daily seminar, right? Um, raising, uh, raising a couple of uh, kids that are around that age. I have a few things to say on that. <laughs> you said on that one, right? <laughs> yeah, well, my 17-year-old is constantly, constantly challenging me. Or may I reframe that and say, giving me the opportunity to grow um, by challenging my own beliefs and by challenging my desire to control things, to keep the calm, which is one of my own wounds. And I found myself just two nights ago I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't be there any moment. I was totally unregulated. I felt so hurt and angered and frustrated as I just left and I drove out to Lake LaBarge, which is this lovely, huge lake in the Yukon. And I sat there and I just thought and thought and I screamed. I just let her out. I was so frustrated and the pain. I'm like, let it out. I didn't let it out at her, which is a great win for me is to let it out inside of me and then just go what was that about and this was getting back into the dining room it's like get in here what is that about and I narrowed it down because I use writing I narrowed it down to the desire to control to make sure that the environment is calm because that's not what I had growing up so my belief was that you need to be calm the family needs to be happy go happy all the time in order for love to grow, but it's not so, it's not so. So it's just, it's really confronting the beliefs that we've had for so many years and decades in cases to, um, to shift them and to reframe it and to understand, okay, she's frustrated. She's a little butterfly. Her wings are ready to go. She wants independence and I'm, I'm allowing that, but there's still things that come up that are just so a part of us. It's life's bad bits that, I just come up every now and then. So, yeah. You know what? I, it's occurring to me just as you walk us through that. I think when I was a teenager, I was I fell into the trap constantly of this is only happening to me. <laughs> I'm all alone. And there's a kind of like deep well of experience that I, I remember that feeling at that time that over time, you know, with time and experience, um, I've been able to kind of like reasonably demolish that um delusion but like uh if there was a way i could go back in time or if i could go to teenagers right now and kind of like let them in on that little life secret i think that uh that could be a re the recipe for them decrazing a little bit i don't know what do you think about that well the the self-esteem and confidence of children is misguided and and the whole system family systems and education system um create and the whole social media all the phones is just like creates oh more. that's a, yeah that's a whole other thing right yeah. i didn't have that when i was growing up yeah. yeah and of course you say that to your kids now and they're like oh, i didn't have that when i was growing up you say that all the time <laughs> there are values <laughs> i i was at a uh, parent uh, conference last week on mental health and and students right at school 
And they have studies that have shown that at the point that the cell phone was released, right? The, I mean, the Apple phone was released and social media and all these things came up. The mental health of children and adolescents has declined by between 20 and 30%. I mean, think about that. Just take that in for a minute. It's because with this information technological advance, right? And so much information, they're exposed to so many other issues and variables, as well as the, the bullying that we've seen take place on social media. The number of suicides amongst children has increased alarmingly so. And, and it is a result that we're getting information that we don't know how to process and we don't know how to deal with. I mean, right now, you can pull up a cell phone and watch a child being beheaded right, from what happened right here. I mean, it's, how do you wrap your head around that? I mean, it's, this is the stuff that, that we're, we're not doing a very good job of creating a protective boundary, if you will, right, around our children and their, their little souls and their hearts and stuff like that. And it's tragic. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing the results of that now. And that's very unfortunate. And all over the world. I've had my fair share too with um with the desire for for teen suicide and just to to get out and self-harm and um anxiety, hospital overdosing, drugs, alcohol, the whole thing. Ultimately, I want to bring this RTT therapy into the schools. If I could make the difference with young girls just moving from um, elementary to to high school to let them know that they're enough, because I think that's the root belief that, that, that they're not enough, that I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough, beautiful enough, all of this competitive stuff that they are enough for themselves to really help them guide them in changing their belief that they are good enough. And I think that's that you can find all sorts of stories around where you were, you know, where you were born, your community, your home of, evidence right of I'm, I'm not good enough obviously I'm not good enough because you know my right. dad did this or my mom did this or said this or said that and it's it's pretty harsh pretty harsh out there and and you're right because you just said we we want to build that protective layer around them but as soon as their first day in daycare it's like poof, on. oh listen you're right on with that you are right on with that you know was, I I you know as you know, and I've been very open about it on our podcast and other sharings I've done, is as I've been going through my own, you know, trying to process this experience I'm going through, I did some EMDR. And one of the things that the EMDR therapist did, we looked at some of my core beliefs related to some of the trauma that happened, right? That's a very common thing in EMDR is you'll identify the trauma and then they'll identify the core beliefs that were generated by that experience. And it was very interesting. What she shared with me was my belief that if I would have been different, if I would have been more or enough, that somehow this wouldn't have happened. It was a very interesting way of trying to say, I want to find some way to control an experience that I couldn't control. And I never looked at it from that perspective. It's a very interesting way to see the function of that idea. That if I would have been this, this wouldn't have happened. If I would have been a better kid, they wouldn't have divorced. If I would have been this way, I wouldn't have been sexually molested. 
See, it's it's our attempt to try to say, this was in my control, so therefore I can be safe. But what we know now is safety comes not from that, from bringing and taking on a what I would call, you know, a belief that we could have controlled something that was beyond our control, but understanding that it was in dealing with the fact that we were unsafe. And now today, as an adult, what I can I do to to be an active part in defending my boundaries and taking care of myself? And because I know you've seen this and I've seen this when there is a failure in terms of making us feel safe as a child, it's going to be hard for us to do that as an adult. Mm -hmm. Total link. Yeah. You know, I uh, I was guilty a bit of that just now. I, I think whenever uh, I get to saying, uh, well, if I could go back in time, but time doesn't work that way. It only goes in one direction. So right. I'm just calling myself out on that. And I think this is a really good um, conversation around the healing of the inner, inner child. Sometimes we disassociate ourselves, our regulated adult self from who we were and the experiences that we were in. And part of the RTT work and my coaching work is to really connect back with that inner child and to actually some really great tools through RTT that allow you to, to have conversations, right? We've done letter writing before, writing is such a powerful thing, but to integrate that younger you, that younger child into who you are now, wrap your arms around like a loving parent and say, you're okay now, you're safe now. Because those three core beliefs that, that in, in RTT that we work with is um, I'm not enough, limiting beliefs. I'm not enough. I'm different, which is what you just explained. And I'm not lovable. So a lot of our trauma and our stories come down to one of those in one way or another. And how can we accept that? We are the same. This is the same brain, the same body, the same bones that grew up that saw you know, my mother lying on the snowbank with a knife in her stomach and, and the fear there, you know, it's, it's, it's who we are. We can't just say that wasn't me, right? Because it was you. And so how can we go? It's okay now. I love you. I'm going to keep you safe. Here we are. This is my home. Look at where we've grown from. And just, I know it's easy said, let it go, but just allow yourself, give yourself permission to be okay with past experiences because you're a different person now. You've got so many more skills and talents and abilities to make life the way you want it. It's choice, right? I'm glad you brought it back to the um, RTT because I was going to ask about, I write, you know, and um, I am working on my daily practice. I also have a lot of uh, insecurity surrounding my writing and uh, I wrestle a lot in between the sitting down and the doing the thing. Um, and it's a very tormented process at this point in time for me. But do you have like a daily practice, um, you know, uh, and this uh, this could be kind of in the wheelhouse of the RTT or maybe just your own recovery. But like, what do you uh, what's your practice surrounding writing at the moment that you can maybe pass along to our audience? Writing is such a powerful, powerful art and tool and healing tool. So when something comes up in my life and I feel it, I feel that trigger, I feel that in my tummy or in my throat or in my head, it's usually a sign that something's got to come out and it's got to be expressed in one way or another, which is the power of writing. I say there's, there's, there's different ways that we can express things. We can express things through our eyes, which is crying. We can express things through our mouth, 
which is talking or singing, through our hands, which is writing, and through our body, which is just movement, right? So to be able to capture one of those when you feel triggered, not to stuff it down, but to capture it and explore it, that's the investigation part, and to really interpret what was going on. And then again, that third eye is to interrupt the pattern, interrupt the story. Oh, this story worked for me back then, this belief, but it doesn't anymore. So I write as much as I can. You know, if the family, my family loves watching movies and I disappear at movie time and I go and I write because that's what I like to do. I like to learn that way. It's, um. here's a little poem. I'm going to share another one with you, if I may, um, which I think is fitting and it's Please. called you choose. It's called you choose because we all have a choice. I know I'm all right, but I used to think that I was wrong. And I used to think that I was weak, but now I know that I'm strong. It's this crazy that we call life that we all get to bear, but what makes it so special is our desire and our willingness to share. We can stuff down life's bad bits and we can pull up our masks and we can cover it all up with those people-pleasing tasks. But I have learned to stand up and walk with my pain and those valuable lessons are now my sweet game. I have learned to break free and not hide from my past, but to hold it up with grace and glory and a mighty good grasp. I have learned to speak my truth. Oh man, I found lessons galore, treasures galore, simply like walking with my head up and not looking down at the floor. And I've learned to listen to my soul and to trust my intuition and my passion to connect is now core to my mission. We've all got one life to live and it's this one right here. So let's cherish it always and not live in fear. We can hide all we want in a comfy cage of redundance, or we can come out of hiding with purpose and abundance. We've got one life. Let's welcome our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions and moods. It's never too late. It's your life and you choose. That sounds very emotionally sober. Well, and maybe that's how we end today's interview. I mean, Janine, that was wonderful. And we'll have you back. You're just like, let's make a few announcements about some things that are upcoming. Um, I know you've got some events and I want to talk about a few events I have coming up. So tell us some of the stuff that's happening for you right now. Well, some of the stuff is I'm preparing and planning my first summit and grateful beyond words to have Dr. Allen Berger as, as one of the speakers. And it's called Women Empowered and Free. And it is about emotional freedom and setting boundaries for those people pleasers in us. Because although I didn't mention it much today, people pleasing can take you right down and understanding what your choices and your boundaries are. So I've got that summit coming up. Um, and if you want to know more about it, I've got, I can drop you a link or you can just go to my link tree and get on and connect with me. Um, that's coming up in December and it's going to be fantastic. And I also do, I do RTT sessions. I've got a program that I've called Luminosity. And that's after I was kayaking down on the island in Vancouver Island and putting my hands through the bioluminescence and bringing them up and just seeing all this light and wonder and I thought, oh, this is so cool, because that's what happens when we get freed from our limiting beliefs is the light starts to peek out and shine. And you can splash, you splash around in it and play. 
So that's that's an integration because I firmly believe that you can do therapy, but you have to have the support and the connection around, you know, unpacking it. And so I, I include coaching with that, empowerment coaching, so that we can unpack the things that come out of it. Um, and those are two things. I've got my Facebook group as well, which is my Soul Empowerment and Transformation Lounge. And that's where I share little master classes and share all sorts of bits and pieces of me. <laughs> it's where I am the most vulnerable. Well, I'll make sure we put all those in the show notes. And how about you, Alan? Well, we got a lot of things coming up here. On, on the 28th, we've got our one-day symposium with Roger and Sarah and John from Sober Speaks, going to be the MC uh, on emotional sobriety. And it's going to be kind of trying to take a fresh look at some of the things that we've talked about with emotional sobriety. So that's coming up. And um, you can go to 4D Publishing to learn more about that. But you'll have a link from Kristen. I'll get, get Kristen to send you a link. Also, December 7th, 8th, and 9th, I believe it is, or 8th, 9th, and 10th, I'm doing a three-day intensive workshop in person with a somatic uh, tra trauma certified therapist. So we're combining Gestalt therapy with somatic therapy for a an incredible event. I've worked with her myself personally. She's a very gifted and talented somatic therapist. So um, I will send you the flyer on that, Patrick, and maybe we can post it there as well, as well as our Thursday night meeting every week, which is open to the public. It's a community service. So please come and join us at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thanks so much for joining us, Janine. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. This is the great. Keep doing what you're doing because it's just the more that, that people can get their stories out and speak their word, it really helps and heals the world. So thank you. Tinge your life. Tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative wherever you are.